Sometimes your best travel memories can come from the strangest places. Dylan Thurse from Atlas Obscura tells us about some of his favorite discoveries at small and unusual museums around the world. It lives in that space between the, the imagined and the fantastical and the plausible. When you visit Greece, you soon realize that the whole country is a living museum. Author Peter Fiennes went to the sites of famous Greek myths to see what you might learn from these same places today. It has everything that you could want in Greece, all in a very small area, and that's what I love about it. It's so easily manageable. We'll also get ideas to enjoy a day or even a week on the Greek mainland. We get seasoned advice from tour guides for exploring the Peloponnesian Peninsula. There's so much of it. It's not all tended or locked away in museums. It is often, as you say, just down a dusty track. Come along for the adventure in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. During the pandemic, British author Peter Fiennes made several trips to Greece. He was looking for signs of how ancient Greek mythology could help shed light on how we confront the challenges of today. Peter tells us what he found a little later in the hour. And Greek tour guides help us experience the heart of Greece on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves looking at a collection of quirky small museums that offer some truly one-of-a-kind exhibits. Your appreciation for a city can increase a lot when you discover some of its more obscure museums. And that's a focus of the Atlas Obscura website. Co-founder and author Dylan Thuris is back with us on Travel with Rick Steves to look at some of the more obscure and fascinating little museums you'll find all around the world. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for joining us. And a fun thing about your book, Atlas Obscura, is it is just littered with little museums that people overlook. And I I guess I was thinking more like confetti. They can rain down on you if you know where to look. And I just think you must have had so much fun. A lot of them are quite eccentric, aren't they? Yeah. And I'm a huge small museum fan. I will go out of my way to visit a small, unusual museum. So I always like writing about these. Oh, yeah. Well, everybody knows you're going to see the Louvre. You're going to see the British Museum. You're going to see the Smithsonian. But let's talk about the the quirky little museums that might also create a lifelong memory in your travels. Let's say I'm skeptical about that, and I don't want to waste my time and money going to uh, some silly little uh, obscure museum. Tell me a silly little obscure museum that might be a great memory. Okay, so here's one that's easy to get to. Tourists are often 10 minutes from it. And it's gotten a little more popular over the years. So maybe it's not so obscure now, but it's still a good one, which is there's a museum called La Specula in Florence. And it is a combination of one of the very first natural history museums. So it's got really ancient collection of taxidermy stuff going back to the, the 1500s. And then it has a collection of wax anatomical models which are these full-scale wax models of people. Uh, Sometimes it's just bones. Sometimes it's muscles. Sometimes it's someone who, like, looks pretty normal until you kind of remove one of the wax pieces and see that the whole thing comes apart. But these were teaching tools specifically all made mostly by Italian sculptors. And this is the premier collection of these. There's only a handful of, of collections of them really in the world. But La Specula has one of the truly great collections. And there's just... There's nothing like them. I mean, Italy is chock full of incredible museums, and I would yeah. put La Specula at the very top of that list. It's you know, great. I suppose you could do a whole chapter, Dylan, on obscure medical museums. Sure. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's a leprosy museum in Bergen, 
What's another medical museum that... Well, I was going to go in a little bit of a, another direction, which is more of an art project. But, but in Croatia, two artists who had been dating uh, and then broke up decided to create a new kind of museum, a kind of museum that, that never existed before, called the Museum of Broken Relationships. Oh. And basically, the idea is to take an object from the relationship. You had some object that was precious to the both of you or you shared a passion for. And then at the end, when the relationship is over, you can put it in this museum and memorialize that that relationship. And yeah. and hundreds of people have taken them up on their offer. And uh, I, I find it to be a very kind of beautiful idea for a museum. That's lovely. And that's somebody's yeah. idea. And, and you know, there's no rules. Anybody can open up a museum if they have that's an right. idea. <laughs> I've right. got, you know, my dad passed away a few years ago, and I've inherited all of his piano tuner gear. And I've got uh-huh. all of these little boxes of felts and bushings and things from the 1950s and 60s. And it's like I could open up a little piano tuners museum. Or in, in your book, I mean, I just noticed there's three museums and they're all uh, labors of love by individuals. There's Gallup the potter. There's yeah. Nick, the guy who really loves fluorescent art. And there's yeah. <laughs> Gerhard, the man that's into the third man in Vienna. Uh, these are just amazing places. And to go there, you, you're very likely to meet the person who started the museum. That's right. I'll give you another example of this kind of labor of love. So this is based in San Francisco, which I can't imagine what other city would be a more appropriate. Uh, It's called the Institute of Illegal Images. And it is not what you think. There's nothing salacious, really, generally. So it's about not a imagery. porn museum. No, no, it is not. It is not that. Okay, what it is? Because this is a it, family show. I know, I know. Okay. So this is. I think this is within the confines. Uh, so this is a guy who started collecting what's called blotter art. So when the drug LSD was given out in the 60s and 70s, it was given out on these sort of sheets like stamps. Imagine a big sheet of stamps. And oftentimes there'd be elaborate art printed onto these sheets. And the thing is, is at the time, no one was thinking about saving any of this. They were eating these. And, uh, and so he's gone around and he's saved. He has really probably the only collection uh, of blotter art in the world. And it captures a certain moment in history. And, and so it's this pretty amazing one-man uh, passion project to kind of collect these things that were made to be ephemeral, kind of made to be consumed, but also then then to preserve them and, and show them to others, which I think is very cool. You know, I mentioned Nick, who runs the, it's called Electric Ladyland Museum of Fluorescent Art. And if you were going to do some of that LSD stuff, I suppose you'd love to go to <laughs> Nick's uh, Fluorescent yeah. Art Museum yeah. in Amsterdam. So I got off on a thing and I thought, yeah, Amsterdam, yeah. if you had a free day in Amsterdam, you could walk within the time of a couple of hours to the Marijuana Museum, the Tattoo Museum, the Pipe Museum, the Shoe Museum, the Houseboat Museum, the Bible Museum. There are so many fascinating museums, and they go under the radar. People don't even know about them in most cases. Dylan Thuris co-founded Atlas Obscura. He's the creative director of their website and co-author of the Atlas Obscura books, including their food adventures guide called Gastro Obscura. He's taking us to some of the world's oddest museums right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Dylan also hosts their daily Atlas Obscura podcast and the YouTube series 100 Wonders. Their website is atlasobscura.com. Dylan, I really am fascinated by museums that sort of celebrate naive art, uh, insane Mm -hmm. art, bad art. I mean, there's a museum filled with art by people who were locked up because they were considered criminally insane in Switzerland and Lausanne. 
In your book, you've got the Museum of Bad Art in Boston. Tell us about some of those kind of art museums. Yeah, I'll start with the Museum of Bad Art and then work my way back to the uh, Collection de la Art Brute. Right. Uh, so the bad, the bad Art Museum, it was started originally as a basement show. Someone thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny to collect some of the bad art that you find, like put out on the side of the road or in the dumpster and, and put on a kind of show of this stuff. And people came and they like completely loved it. They Everyone thought it was amazing. And so it started to form into this real thing until it became uh, what's now called MOBA, the Museum of Bad Art. And they basically go to great lengths to select the worst bad art possible. So they're looking for stuff that's kind of got Something true, like it doesn't, the technique can be good. Someone can actually be talented, but somehow the thing that they're depicting <laughs> is all wrong. So it's kind of like there's a one where there's like a sort of a fish on a fire. It's like a mini whale on a fire It's for like inexplicable reasons. And the whale is smiling or there's a little ferret in a dress. Like these are, they're just these kind of very odd, uh, unique pieces. So you can go see that here in New England. Or if you're in Switzerland, yeah, you can go to the collection De La Art Brut or De La Art Brut. I'm, I'm not pronouncing that correctly. But uh, basically, it's works from artists who are on the fringes of society, you know, people who are schizophrenic, people who were, you know, committed. And there's a long tradition of, um, you know, like Henry Darger was a, was an artist who is basically a, a loner and, and probably, you know, mentally ill, who created thousands and thousands and thousands of works of art and then has been celebrated kind of post-death. And the, the collection of uh, Art Brut in Switzerland uh, does the same thing. And I think in, in more recent times, I think there's been a much more intentional... Uh, effort to tell the full story of this kind of material and make sure that what's good and what's bad is being made clear and that, you know, oftentimes now these art programs are uh, integrated with kind of mental care, which I think is really a positive Oh, yeah. Thing. And and it's a very um, thought-provoking opportunity to kind of wonder who are the people who are crazy, you know? I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard to know uh, on which side. And every artist in Art Brut Museum's story is told. And yeah, it, it right. humanizes them, and and you can recognize the challenges they've had, and you can you can sort of gain a, an appreciation of of how tough life would be if you just don't fit the mold. I noticed in your book you've got uh, museums for like mythic creatures. You've got a whole spread in the book about almost every state in the United States has some sort of a lake monster. Uh, do any of these come with turnstiles and and sites? Because I was just in Scotland, and of course they got the Loch Ness Center. Yeah. So if you're in uh, Portland, Maine, you should make a beeline to the Cryptozoology Museum, which is basically a collection of all kinds of cryptozoological myths, uh, archives. And the guy who runs it, Lauren, takes the work pretty seriously. I mean, he's interested, you know, cryptozoology. It's one of these funny things that lives with a, a major foot into the ridiculous, but one foot in the slightly plausible. Occasionally, new animals are discovered. Are we going to find a Yeti? Probably not. But they discover a new, you know, rock rat or species of spider all the yeah. time. And so it's, it lives in that space between the, the imagined and the fantastical and the plausible. This is so important to recognize that because I had a bad attitude about Loch Ness Monster yeah. for a long time because <laughs> I think it's a pile of BS, you know. Yes, but, it, sure it is. But there are, thoughtful, <laughs> there are th thoughtful scientists who have dedicated their careers to 
helping people better appreciate nature and what would the circumstance be if some monster was down here and how could it be possible and why is it not possible? And there's a wonderful scientist, Adrian Schein, and he's dedicated his his whole career to helping all the tourists that go to this goofy Loch Ness Monster Museum actually have a worthwhile experience. And I just think that is a beautiful way to take something that's just pop and turn it into something that's fun and still valuable. You must have found that as you travel. It must be so much fun for you to do that. And we're, we're out of time now, but, but when you do your work and, and highlight these obscure places that go under the radar, what is your aspiration other than entertainment uh, with all the work you do and how you hope to impact people's travels? I just want people to visit a place that when they go there, they say, this is a truly wonderful, unique destination, and hopefully it, it tells them something about the part of the world they're in or some part of the culture. And so that's giving people great, great experiences is ultimately my goal. And if it's a, a goofy museum, it's, it's an avenue into a, a better appreciation of that particular culture. That's right. That's it's, a, right. it's a Trojan horse of a global <laughs> yeah, perspective. Right. Well, if you go to the Sausage Museum in Germany, you're like, okay, yeah, that's a thing. You're going to learn why the Germans love to eat so well. Hey, that's Dylan right. Thirst, thank you so much, and best wishes with your work at Atlas Obscura. Thanks so much, Rick. Thanks for having me. Some of the best parts of Greece are an easy drive from Athens along the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Greek guides help us explore it. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Most people's Greek itineraries start in Athens, and then they quickly head for one of the many islands scattered across the Aegean and Ionian seas. There's another intriguing way to enjoy the essence of Greece, and that's even easier to get to. It's the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It starts just beyond Corinth, where mountain roads and historic small towns share the same vistas that the gods and demigods of ancient Greece used to ponder. Our guides to the challenges and rewards of touring the Peloponnese are Anastasia Gaitanu and David Willett. Welcome. Thank you. Pleased to see you, Rick. Now, David, you've been going to the Peloponnesian Peninsula for a few decades now. Uh, Fair to I'm say? Into, into, my, into my third. Third decade. Third, and it has been my home for a while, too. So it's Is a that place right? that I, uh, I really enjoy going to. It has everything that you could want in Greece, all in a very small area, and that's what I love about it. It's so easily manageable. You talk about challenges. I don't see many challenges apart from public transport. So if, if you have, have a car, you've solved if that. You have, if, you have, if you have your own car, it's incredibly easy because it's actually tiny. If you get on a main road, you cover the whole length of the Peloponnese in an hour. <laughs> My goodness. So it really is not very large. So what should a traveler know to best appreciate the Peloponnesian Peninsula? I think they should have a, a, a clear itinerary. If you have that, then everything falls into place because it's really very easy. In other words, do some planning and do know some... how are you going to allocate your limited time so you can prioritize? Yes, that's exactly what you So let's say you have a week. Uh, now, the Peloponnese is, you drive for an hour south of Athens and you cross the Gulf of Corinth and you're on that peninsula called the Peloponnese. What would be the top week if somebody wanted to sightsee their way around uh, the peninsula that you call home? It really depends because it depends on your own interests. If you are interested in the origins of Christianity, then you would make your first stop ancient Corinth, Mm -hmm. which is right across the Isthmus of Corinth. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, Olympia. I would do a circuit. Mm -hmm. I would drive along. I go to to ancient Corinth first. Mm -hmm. Then I would drive along the north coast. I really like going up into the mountains, which goes up into the hills and then descends to Olympia. 
From in that. Olympia being the site of the first Olympic Games way back 700 and so years before Christ. Officially 780, yes. Yeah. So. Okay, so from the so you've seen two ancient sites, Corinth and Olympia. You got a dose of the interior, which is a rugged kind of peasant culture, I suppose, little little towns up there. And then where would you go? I love going down to the south, to the Mani Peninsula, just because it's so rugged and individual, and uh, I think the people there rather reflect their surroundings. It's, uh, well famously rebellious people and they they have that spirit with them to this day and it's something that uh, I think is rather charming. So what's an example of something that you could experience today that represents the the strength and the will of the people of the Mani Peninsula in the far south of Greece? They're very proud people, very proud of their history, their history of in particular of resistance to the Turks but really to, to any outsiders and it's only in the last 20 or 30 years I think that they've started to warm at all to uh, to outsiders. So fiercely independent people, to this day you get that sense. Okay, and then finish off your circle? Depends how much time you have. Mm-hmm. I do like uh, Monomvasi. It's one of the more romantic places uh, in Greece. Sparta is a great favorite of mine because as a product of uh, a private school system, we use the Spartan agogi. So uh, I have a lot of Sparta inside me. Now what does that mean? Uh, the Sparta it what? Was, it was the system that the Spartans were raised under and agogi literally refers to cattle rearing because that's really how they treated everything in a very practical sense. And you were raised in this way in Australia? That's that, no, that was in England. Oh, in England, Because right. I was born in England. Okay. And the English private school system is based on the Spartan system. Really? Now, I just thought Sparta was a sort of cultural boot camp and uh, not a lot to show. I mean, there's not a lot of the ancient site left. You see a pretty nondescript modern city when you go to Sparta. That's because it, the, uh, to find ancient Sparta, you would have to go down through two layers. So it's Modern buried. Sparta and Roman Sparta. Okay. They know where the sites are, and there are some that are still visible. Mm-hmm. The Temple of uh, Artemis Orthia, they know mm-hmm. where the Persian Stoa is. There's all sorts of buildings that they know about. The Temple of Athena is still there. Most of ancient Sparta lies underneath the modern city. Okay, and if you have limited time and, and a limited attention span, there's probably other ancient sites you would see first. There are, but if you have a fascination with history, it's something that you should see. It's got a very nice little museum. Small, but uh, some very significant artifacts in there. Now, there's three sites we didn't talk about, uh, Napleon, Epidavros, and Mycenae. How's your take on those three sites? Well, Napleo is where I used to live, and that's where I'd finish my tour. Okay. And from Napleo, you can visit these other sites. They're very, they're both are very close by to Napleo. Why do you choose to live in Napleon? Because it's close to everything. It's not a big town. I'm a bit of a country boy at heart. It has, it's large enough to have a, an element of sophistication about it without being uh, traffic uh, ruined like Athens. When I'm visiting as somebody who's not as adept at Greek culture and language as you, th- there's different spellings and different ways to say towns. Naf- Napleon, laf- Napleon. Why is that? Transliteration in Greece is, uh, is, is extremely difficult. Napleo, well, that's quite a mild example. If you go, say, to the metro station Piraeus in Athens, Within the space of 100 yards, you'll see it's spelt three different ways. Just because you're going from one script to another script and there's yes. no clear Direct. way to do that directly. There's no, no real rules. Anastasia, when you heard David, uh, who has adopted your home country as his home yeah. country, talk about the Peloponnesian Peninsula, what would you advise travelers from America who are going to the Peloponnesian Peninsula to really enjoy the, the culture of the people there? Well, I suppose if you go for the first time, you definitely have to see the main attractions. I mean, there is a reason why they are the main attractions. But to really embrace that culture and to 
understand what it stands for. You have to go off the beaten track mm-hmm. and you definitely do have to plan your itinerary quite well and you have to know what is off the beaten track when you go from one sightseeing to the other. Because in, when you go to Greece, it's easy just to go to all the famous ancient places, but there's much more than that. So what's an example yeah. of off-the-beaten-path Peloponnese that you would recommend? Well, there are many examples. There is a historical example, and if you're really fascinated with history and archaeology, and that is the ancient site of Messini, which is quite new. It's huge. It used to be a, a city, and the walls are in almost perfect condition. It's really wonderful, and it's... And this was the capital of the Mycenaeans. uh, That was the capital of the Mycenaeans, yes. And we know them from, like, the Trojan War and this sort of thing. If we know them from the Trojan War, well, yes, they are mentioned there, but we know them mainly from the wars against Sparta because they were the first ones, the Spartans, and drove away from their territory and the first ones who became their slaves. And to put that in perspective, that's like a thousand years before Socrates and Plato and the Acropolis and everything. A thousand years before, no. That's about 100, 150 years before, oh, really? okay. before the Acropolis. That would be 7th, 6th century BC. Okay, but this is Mycenae, and when, did, when was Mycenaean founded? When it was founded, well, uh, that particular city around the 6th, 5th century, although mm-hmm. most of what we see today is from the 4th, 4th, 4th century. century BC always. Okay. BC and, and on. But it's very well preserved, beautifully restored, with a tiny, beautiful museum, mm-hmm. and because it's not very known, you really don't find all these these masses, you know, of, of tourists. You don't have that packed place that you have in other places. And it's really wonderful. So that's one idea. And then, of course, there are um, beautiful landscapes. Like uh, many people think that Greece is a flat country, which is not. It's a very mountainous country, and Peloponnese is very mountainous. There are beautiful tracks then. There are trails. We even have uh, skiing resorts. Ski resorts in the Peloponnese? Yeah. I would have yeah, never thought. There, ski Greece. There, there is even a, a ski resort on Crete. That's and, a surprise. And that's the south. Our guides to the Peloponnesian Peninsula of Greece are Anastasia Gaitanou, an art and history specialist from Thessaloniki, and David Willett, who lives in Australia, but who's long been an expert in ancient Greece. They both lead American visitors around Greece. You'll find more about our guests in each week's show notes. That's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Angela's on the line from Decatur, Georgia. She's looking for some touring advice. I'm going to be traveling to Athens and then the Peloponnesian Peninsula soon, and I'm going with my whole family. So I've got my husband and then a teenage boy and an eight-year-old boy. And so I'm wondering if there are any particular highlights that will really wow the kids and make them happy that they're on family vacation. Hmm, that's a good question. So you got some teenage boys, David. Where would you take them in the Peloponnesian, just to turn them on to traveling in Greece? I think the teenage boys or children of any age all love Olympia because they understand Olympia, and it's a place where you can really connect easily. And these kids can line up on the original starting block they and can sprint run, across that stadium. They can run the original stadium and they all love it i did it with my son when he was 10 and uh i staged a dead heat to this day he thinks he beat me (laughs) (laughs) 
I remember the, it is so I remember as a kid in Greece my first time one of the one of the vivid memories is lining up on that starting block and thinking this is where the first Olympic dash was. Also David you mentioned Monemvasia which we just glossed over but that's like the Gibraltar of of Greece isn't it? It's this huge rock with a ruined castle on top. That would be a fun thing for teenage boys to climb to the top of. I think that oh. uh, kids generally like the the sites that are less sterile, and it's a place kind of place where your imagination can run riot, and that's why kids like it. Monomvasia. Uh, Monomvasia, yeah. yes. Now, there's a town in the far south, uh, Cardamili, and, and I remember there's a, a man, uh, I think his name's Yanni. He's got a shop where he just uh, scavenges in the countryside. Do you know this shop, Anastasia? Yeah, I know the shop. So if you had some boys coming in there, what would Yanni introduce to you in the shop that is so kind of connecting with the flora and the fauna? Oh, God, well, he does have, um, if I remember well, well, he does have a lot of herbs and, and all the traditional stuff that are in the country, and, and you can get small sweets in there and things like that. But he, he's, he's a wild guy. He's, um, he has a um, good connection to children, he, to teenagers more. He understands them. We're talking about Cardamili, K-A-R-D-A-M-Y-L-I. It's a beautiful, it's probably the best home base on the very south coast of the Peloponnese Peninsula. And there would be different people. We, uh, there's this one character named Yanni who runs a little shop. But anywhere in these towns, you can find people that, that love to share their passion for the culture and their heritage. Does that give you some ideas, Angela? That's perfect. Exactly what I'm looking for. Have, Thank you so much. Have fun with your boys going to the Peloponnese. Thank you. Lynn is on the line in Littleton, Colorado. Lynn, thanks for your call. Yes, my husband and I actually um, ride a tandem bicycle, and together with friends, we take tandem bicycle tours. And the Peloponnese, at first glance, sounds to me like an awesome place to go on bicycle tours. Um, So my question is, is it possible to ride there? Are the roads safe? Are they good for cyclists? Um, are the villages between, we like to ride typically 40 to 50 or 70, 40 to 50 miles a day, 70 to 80 K per day. Um, so are there villages in between that are good for visiting and then also have accommodations adequate for a group of, say, 30 to, well, approximately 30 people or 15 couples? Wow, you have 15 couples going together on a bike trip, huh? Yep. And tandem bicycles. Tandem bicycles. So um, that's interesting. You're basically designing your own tour. What do you think, David, about a group of people? Somebody's going to have to be the tour guide and make reservations in advance and so on. But what would lend itself to a bike tour going, what, 50 kilometers a day or something? You would have to be an Olympic athlete because Mm -hmm. it's so mountainous. (laughs) It's uh, it's seriously tough going. I have seen one person in Mm -hmm. 20-odd years riding riding a bike. Yeah, everybody's and, shaking their heads here. We think you better find another place. <laughs> okay. Or if you do go, just um, try to use side roads and, and take another means of transportation to go from one important place to the other. There are bikers who do that. And try to use all the forest roads, side roads. Besides, um, the official roads are also dangerous for bikers in Greece. We call it the suicide mission. I wouldn't do it. Okay, but, but if you take all the side roads, there are beautiful landscapes, and, and that's fine. You can have bike excursions every day, and doing that—that's that, that's, that's what a lot of people do. Yanni rents bikes. He's the only person in Greece that knows what a helmet is. That <laughs> <laughs> probably his. So there you go, Lynn. You got a suicide mission for your gang in the Peloponnesian Peninsula, where it's hot and dry. Okay. Well, I guess I have to look elsewhere. <laughs> Thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye bye. 
Our guides to Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula on today's Travel with Rick Steves are David Willett and Anastasia Gaitanou. David's on the phone in Knoxville, Tennessee. David, thanks for calling in. Uh, yeah, I've got some questions um, relating to um, the Greek Orthodox Church in Greece, obviously. I'm wondering if there are Greek holidays I need to be aware of and plan around. I'm wondering if their religious fasting at Lent uh, affects restaurant choices. And uh, maybe on the more positive side, are there Greek religious celebrations that I should try to incorporate into uh, a travel itinerary? So, Anastasia, when an American's going to Greece, uh, concerned about um, festivals in a convenient way and an inconvenient way, what should we look forward to? What should we be aware of? Well, it's always good to know when Easter is, every time, because everything's closed on that day. Uh, so some years it's the same as uh, the Western Easter, and some years yeah. it's different. It can be till five weeks of difference, so it's good to know mm-hmm. every time when it is. Is that a good time to be traveling or, or a complicated time? If it's a good time. Well, yes, it is a good time in the sense that you get to see other things, that you can be at certain festivals and festivities and, and celebrate as the Greeks do mm-hmm. during that week. But, of course, there are some side effects of that, like there is uh, less transportation (laughs) available, for example, and uh, most of the shops close early, sites are closed on that day, so it depends on what your interests are, on what what you want to see more, you want to see how people celebrate, or you want to see just the sites. You'll see lots of families out uh, feasting and goats on spits and this sort of thing. Yeah, you see the goats on spits and you smell them (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) And lamb, of course, is a traditional dish on that way. But fastening before uh, Easter does not affect your restaurant choices at all. It adds to them because all restaurants add to their normal menu more choices, and you have lo- more things. So fasting to during from. Lent not an issue for David or no, anybody traveling. No, it's not traveling. an issue at all. And of course, Easter is a, the the big festival, even more so than Christmas. I think in for Greece. the Orthodox Church, Easter is more important than Christmas because with Christmas everything started. But without Easter, there wouldn't be this um, well beautiful ending with salvation and all the rest. So <laughs> the Easter is a big festival in Greece, and that's something that uh, changes from the date the date from year to year. So it's not always the Easter that we would have here in in the Western Church. In another day, you have to be careful of is the fifteenth of August if you choose to come in the summer, because it's uh, the Dormition of Mother Mary, but it's the main vacation for all Greeks, and during the first. 20 days, let's say from the 5th till the 20th of August, everything is really packed and very expensive because all Greeks are traveling. So, so avoid that period. August 15, the day Mary went to heaven, and the 10 days around that are going to be really packed because that's holiday time. There you go, David. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, have a good time in Greece. Okay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about exploring the Peloponnese Peninsula with David Willett and Anastasia Gaitanou. Thank you, David, and thank you, Anastasia. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Author Peter Fines shares his search for the mythological roots of modern Greece in just a minute. But first, here's some travel impressions our listeners have written as original haiku poems they sent to us at ricksteves.com slash radio. Barbara Garatti in Westchester, Pennsylvania, who spent a year in Japan in the 1960s, summarizes what she thinks of every August 6th. Memories won't fade. August 6th. Hiroshima. Bells toll all the day. 
Lisa Maghetto from Seattle finds the history in Bavaria inspiring. One month in Munich, around every corner, history unfolds. Daniel Roberts in Lambertville, New Jersey, has an observation about a trip to Dixie. A horse and buggy. The South is always healing. The whip is for show. While Kathy Seifert in Santa Clarita, California, has been learning about her British ancestors. Sir Christopher Wren. Romans. Normans. Saxons. Kings. London, my true home. If ever there was a travel destination you could describe as mythical, it would be Greece. The sites of ancient legends and battles, and the homes of gods and goddesses are often waiting for any of us to explore. But finding and understanding them can be a challenge. Author Peter Fines armed himself with the stories of ancient Greece and how they echo in today's popular culture to help him as he set out to find these places and better understand the ancients. Peter joins us now from the BBC in London to tell us what he discovered and what he wrote about in his latest book, A Thing of Beauty. Peter, thanks for being with us. It's an absolute pleasure. I love the thought that you went to Greece intending to gather information to inspire us all to pay attention to myths in our travels. How did that come about? How, how is it that you thought myths could be interesting for our travels? Well, I've got a lifelong obsession with myths ever since I read them when I was very small and all those incredible stories about Theseus and uh, Zeus and the gods and goddesses. Also, I was just thinking, was there some way in which the myths were in any way relevant to our lives still? And I thought it'd be interesting to go to Greece, to the places where the myths actually emerged, and see if they had anything to say to us, if there was any kind of resonance, or particularly from a kind of environmental perspective. I was... Um, well, the, years, the year when I wrote it was particularly gloomy and desperate. Uh, the pandemic was just starting, but also um, forest fires were raging in California and Australia and beyond. And I wanted to get to Greece, this land of myth and incredible beauty, and see if the, I could connect with anything that would have a sort of message for what was going on. Now, as a tour guide and travel writer, I have struggled. i got to be honest, I've struggled with Greek myths because my problem is I can't really bridge that, okay, that that was interesting, and that's what people were thinking about a long time ago, but why does that matter today? So you have made it applicable, or you that was your goal. In other words, you found out why Greek myths matter today. What did you find? Well, they're incredible stories. That's the first thing to say. They're absolutely gripping stories in themselves. I mean, it's true that many of the myths are about uh, gods abducting nymphs and you know stuff that is uh, less relevant to today. But there's incredible um, stories that it's really worth hearing them all again. We think we know them. Lots of us sort of heard them when we were young, and they kind of do permeate our culture today. But we've sort of only half know them or we've forgotten them. And the other great thing about them is there's many, many versions of every myth. It was great for me because it meant I couldn't get them wrong. But, <laughs> yes. um, well, it's kind of like, the, it's kind of like my, my, for trans, what do you call it, transliteration, when you, when you go from one script to another, you'll have different ways to spell things. And you can always just blame the, oh, there's different ways to transliterate. Yes, exactly. All the different authors had different versions of the myths. And the great thing about myths as well is that they're slippery. They kind of evolve. I mean, we've got versions of the myths today, the Greek myths, that are very different from the ones that the Greeks themselves had. Wow. So people go, like in the Bible, people kind of debate, how far back are you going? Are you going back to the ancient Greek or, or the you know Aramaic or whatever? Is the same issue in Greece if you're getting to the root of things, are you finding 
a quote, you know, most reliable translation. I, I didn't realize there was that same sort of challenge. It's sort of different authors. And the ancient Greek authors, the playwrights in particular, they love to play with the different versions of myths. So they had their own versions just because they got bored with the same one over and over again. So sometimes the version that comes down to us, it will be in a particular play by someone, and it's the one we all know. But actually, if you look further back, there'll be another version, and then another playwright would have written (laughs) something else entirely. So you get all these different stories because they just liked playing around with them, basically. So they survived mostly in in plays or what what is the the, they survive in plays they of course they survive in the Iliad and the Odyssey Homer's great works Uh, there's a man called Hesiod who wrote something called Theogony and Work and Days which uh, are earliest versions he was writing at the same time as uh, Homer not that Homer wrote and uh, some of our versions of Pandora things like that and how the world started, that all comes from him. You know, I think we often underestimate how much is actually written down from from the time before Christ. Um, you even started your book quoting a, a second-century Greek guide, uh, a guy who wrote a, a guidebook to Greece, essentially. Yes. I, as an ex-guidebook writer, I fell in love with this man. He's called Pausanias. I didn't know anything about him before I started my book, and I ended up following uh-huh. him around Greece because he wrote this guidebook uh, you know, over 2,000 years ago about Greece, and he was there at the time of the Romans, and uh, so things were in ruins already, but also vast amounts still stood there. And when we, well, I say modern Europeans in the 18th century started to revisit Greece after this long, long period of 1,800 years or so, they were digging up whole cities just based on Pausanias' guidebook because he would describe things so precisely. Wow. Uh, You would go round this valley and down this river and here on the left is the ancient city of X and they'd get their spades out and lo and behold, there it would be with all these miraculous statues and everything. You know, that, that reminds me, a lot of the great artistic masterpieces of Greece were lost, but they were so beautifully described that the ancient Romans knew they had existed and they were inspired by them, even though they, they didn't have it in front of their very eyes. And then they would excavate it and it would sort of match the description. Incredible, yes. Or they would copy them, or they would copy them, as you say, from descriptions, or they they had the originals and they'd copy those originals and then the original would be lost. And uh, the Romans did cart a lot off back to Rome. They looted yeah. Greece and I mean, We can thank the Romans for preserving it we in can. a certain twisted kind of way. Now, you started your journey in the countryside estate of Lord Byron in Nottinghamshire in, in England. Why did you start your, your Greek adventure in, in well, England? <laughs> there, there were two reasons. One was, I'm afraid, the pandemic. And I was itching to get to Greece and I just couldn't get there because we kept having lockdowns and all my plans. I've been planning this book for a long time and then I just couldn't travel to Greece. And then I've always had a, I love Lord Byron, I love the Romantic Poets, and uh, he was obsessed with Greece. And uh, he died in Greece fighting for Greek independence. And if you go to his house, his abbey, his sort of family estate in Nottinghamshire, Newstead Abbey, you will find an oak tree that he planted right in front of the house when he was 10 years old, a little boy. He'd just inherited the house. And uh, I think his mum was trying to cheer him up, so she let him plant this oak tree in the most ludicrous place, right in front of the front window. Later in life, he became preoccupied with the idea that if his tree sickened, then so would he. And also if he sickened, so would his tree. He felt they were kind of somehow umbilically linked. Uh, And that's a very ancient Greek idea. So um, he was steeped in the classics and he he loved the idea of Greece. And he's a a big personality in Greece. Peter Fines takes us along with him to ancient and modern Greece in his latest book called A Thing of Beauty. 
He's our guest on Travel with Rick Steves as we hear what the ancient muses and oracles can tell us today if you just know where to look on the Greek mainland and out in the islands. Peter posts on Twitter at pfines. That's F-I-E-N-N-E-S. So, Peter, I just mentioned muses and oracles. Of course, you stopped with a check-in with the, the spirit of Lord Byron before going there, but in good Greek mythological style, did, did you consult with the oracle at Delphi, or did you have a little huddle with the muses? I did both of those things. I uh, had a huddle with the muses. As soon as I got to Athens, there's a hill of the muses, and uh, I went there as a little shrine which survives, and I laid a pen there as an offering to the muses in the hopes that they would look after me when I researched my book and not get lost. And then I did indeed consult the Oracle at Delphi, which I hadn't thought for a second you could do. But if you go onto the internet, of course, you can do just about anything. So it was a rather modern way of consulting the Oracle. But I did. I had a question for the Oracle and they answered. It was amazing. I hope it was wise. By the way, to me, I don't know a lot of these mythological um, excuses to respect and, and better appreciate ancient Greek thinking and uh, how it tied in with their, you know, their religion and, and all of these gods and so on. But when you think about the Oracle of Delphi, it's a big deal for travelers. We stop into the Oracle and my understanding is uh, there was a, in a very simplistic way, a kind of a crack in the, in the earth and fumes were coming out and they'd have a priestess that would inhale these and she would become kind of dazed by that and she'd babble and then these priests would interpret her babble and and tell people who were searching for wisdom what they wanted people to understand about the way things were. And people came from all over the world to be get wisdom from the gods in Delphi from the, the oracle. Am I getting it there or, or what was the oracle? You've described it beautifully. That was the way it evolved, I suppose. Uh, and by the end, yes, there was a priestess and, and there was a crack in the earth, as you say, and smoke was emerging, although the crack is no longer there. They think it must have closed up. Laurel leaves were important in some way. They burnt laurel leaves, but they think the priestess might have chewed on them as well. And the replies, you had to be really careful asking your question because the reply, the answer, was always at an angle. It was slightly elliptical. It could easily be um, mistaken for something else. And foolish people who rushed to interpret their oracle were often undone, like Croesus, who was the richest man who ever lived, was also an emperor. He consulted the oracle and said, should I attack the Persians who are attacking him? And the oracle came back and said, if you do, a great empire will fall. And he thought that that meant that he would defeat the Persian Empire. But of course, it was his own empire that fell. So the Oracle, Ah. I mean, the good thing about that meant that the Oracle was always right. Because, of course, um, the great empire did fall. Whichever way he went, it would fall. But yes, you had to be very careful. It's easy to think that that's just a pile of baloney, that that the wisdom from the Oracle. But I understand that people came from all across the Greek world to get this divine wisdom. And before they were allowed to ask their question, they were interviewed, and in a sense, the people there were gathering data, intelligence from everybody, all that information coming in, they could dispense information better than anybody in that whole civilization because they were a hub of all this information. They knew what was going on, and they could blow people away with their answers. They were a nerve center of information, absolutely right. So I suppose you could just say that's what they were doing. They knew more than anyone else. Their alliances shifted, so they would probably shift their answers often to, to please their particular allies. But there was also something genuinely um, 
mystical about the Oracle and mm. uh, the atmosphere of Delphi, if you go there, is still absolutely stunning. You go there, you feel the presence of something there. If you know it, it's high up and, and there's mountains oh, all around and it's green and it's and the air is particularly sweet and wondrous. It's an extraordinary place and you can feel its, its power. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Fines and his book is A Thing of Beauty, Travels in Mythical and Modern Greece. Hey, Peter, I've always been intrigued by the island of Delos. I understand that was the home of the treasury of the Athenian League and it was right in the middle of the islands. In fact, I climbed to the summit of that little island. It's just kind of a little sub-island of, of Mykonos, isn't it? And, and you climb up to the summit, mm. and you look around 360 degrees, and you see all those Cycladic islands. And you realize Cycladic, it's a cycle, and it was sort of named by the hub of that wheel of islands, which was right there in Delos. What was the importance of Delos so long ago, and uh, what can you learn about it from, from the myths? Well, it was the birthplace of Apollo, and his sister Artemis. Uh, in fact, until relatively recently, it was a floating island. And uh, his mother, Leto, was cursed by Hera because she, he was, she was pregnant with Zeus's children. And Leto was told that she couldn't give birth anymore on Earth. So she found this floating island, island Delos, and she gave birth there. And, and then the island became rooted. So Apollo comes from there, and then he made his way to Delphi, which is where uh, all his um, oracles were given. So, uh, But even now, it's, it's, as you say, it's an absolutely beautiful place, and uh, it feels magical still. At one time, 20,000 people lived on that tiny island, and it was laden with all the treasure, as you say, from Athens and other countries. Another highlight for me that you, you've, uh, you've explored in your book is Mycenae, the city of gold with its, you know, its fabled lion's gate and the King Agamemnon story and so on. What did you find and what did you learn at Mycenae? I was traveling at a very strange time, as I think I've said. You know, COVID had taken a grip and, and lockdowns had ended briefly in Greece and in Britain where I was traveling from. Uh, but there were very, very few travelers. So when I went there, I was one of only about 10 people. Uh, which was extraordinary because normally in a normal year you would have hundreds if not thousands of people and it is the most important city in Greece, pre-Athenian Greece, pre-classical Greece and it's it was excavated in the 19th century by a rather reckless German archaeologist called Schliemann who blew a lot of it up with dynamite to get at its treasures. Yeah. Absolutely treasures of gold flowed out of it and they think this is where Agamemnon who led the fleet to Troy lived and um it's it's still it's got an incredible atmosphere it's high up and it's in the middle of nowhere you look around in every direction and there's bare mountains and it's got a slightly sinister atmosphere i have to say this is where many of the greek tragedies took place and agamemnon was murdered by his wife and when he came home from troy and the sort of the blood flowed in Mycenae and just down the hill from it is is modern day Mycenae which is these things are relative it's still very old and it's got lovely little tavernas and it's a great place to hang out so it's a, it's a great yeah. outing you know peter it is an interesting thing to remember try to remember the depth of the history we're talking about here because if Mycenae was like a thousand years before the Greece that we always think of you know the golden age Greece Socrates and Plato and so on and Mycenae was just as mysterious, I would imagine, to Socrates and Plato as Socrates and Plato are to us. 
Yes, absolutely. And this is where this is where all the tales of Troy and everything emerged, because these enormous cities like Mycenae were, were right there, and they could see them, and they could see their ruins and these huge, great things. They couldn't imagine how anyone could have built them. They thought that they were built by cyclops, which are the one-eyed giants, ah. because no human could possibly have built them. So you're right, there was a great dark age. Mycenae fell, and then there was a dark age, and then classical Greece and Athens and Sparta rose. And so... Um, Cyclopean architecture... Yes. Too big for any man to build. It's, it's, you know, it's so interesting to try not to underestimate how smart people were back then in their context. Of course, they, they didn't have, you know, modern technology and computers and, and all this, but there was a lot of wisdom and also a lot of wonder. And in your travels, if you can, if you can resurrect that, if you can appreciate that, it really sort of invigorates the whole experience. Completely, which is why I went looking for the myths, but also the ruins and the cities and the temples where they emerged. And I went looking for beauty and hope. And uh, those things are all over the Greek landscape. And because Greece, you know, modern day Greece is a wondrous place full of the most exquisite beaches and tavernas. Peter Fines wrote A Thing of Beauty, Travels in Mythical and Modern Greece, while looking for the relevance of Greek mythology on his latest travels there. Peter tells us more about the people he met who used the sense of hope they find in Greek culture to help confront today's climate and environmental challenges. You can hear about it in an extra to today's interview. It's posted with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. What's a moment on the road that really, you know, you got to approach these things with a little romance, a, a little bit of, uh, you know, let yourself go. I mean, to be on... Cape Sunion at sunset. You've got an amazing temple right there, and you know the history of it as it was a very critical spot on the tip of the, the peninsula past Athens. For me, that's a, a great moment. What, what was a great moment for you in your ventures? Yeah, that is a lovely place because you can see Lord Byron's name carved into one of the columns when he went there. He just put his name there. Uh, for me, the temple, um, the theatre at Epidavros, is extraordinary. This is an old surviving stepped stone theatre where they still put on productions, not the year I was there, sadly. Uh, but that made it even more magical in a way because it's huge. I don't know how many people it seats if you squeeze them all in. You know, thousands of people. Oh, thousands. Yeah, it's got the most extraordinary acoustics. And so when I was there, there were, again, about seven of us sitting around in this theatre. And we were right perched high at the top. And because of the acoustics, um, we were sitting next to a French mother and her little girl. And the mother just suddenly said, you know, listen. And she walked all the way down to the very center, far, far blurs. And she picked up a tiny little stone and she dropped it, ping, like that. And the sound just rippled up towards us. And this was at dusk in Epidavros. And, and then she started to sing mm. this beautiful old choral song. And it was the most exquisite moment. It's a land of beauty and it's a land of hope and it's a land with such a rich and long heritage. Peter Fines, thanks so much for joining us and uh, thanks for all the work you put into writing A Thing of Beauty so all of us can better appreciate the, the mythical dimensions of Greece when we go to enjoy that country as a whole. Thank you very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall and Donna Bardsley. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku about your travel impressions 
Details are at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.